0: Well, hello, and uh, welcome back to the Cincy Reformed Podcast. My name is Zach Wise. I'm here with uh, Brandon Burks, and we are co-pastors at Westside Reformed Church. And today we're going to be uh, finishing up our little mini-series on some differences between the Baptistic uh, theological tradition and church tradition and the Reformed uh, tradition that we are a part of. And so uh, we're going today to be thinking about the thing that's probably most practical and that you'd see most clearly if you came to our church, if you're coming to us from a uh, Baptistic background, and that is worship. And so uh, by nature, by definition, there's probably, there's going to be some, uh, it's going to be harder to Uh, bring the Baptistic tradition together with one confessional statement, but Brandon, maybe you can start introducing us a bit to uh,
1: what might be some um, things that characterize uh, worship from a Baptistic background. Sure, yeah. So, you know, as the Baptists um, are independent and autonomous, Mm -hmm. they can really structure uh, their worship in in radically different ways and um and have different streams of thought and even different theologies behind uh the 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 way in which they're bringing worship together and so it, there's a, it can be a lot of diversity you can have the Baptist churches that have maybe the full-on band. You could have Baptist churches that just have an organ and they sing hymns only or something like that. So there can be quite the, the diversity among the Baptistic uh, churches. Uh, one website uh, was talking about some of the Baptist distinctives. And when it got into Baptist uh, Baptistic worship services, it had a, a couple statements that I thought kind of encapsulated a lot of the Baptistic approach to worship uh one statement said a sermon is a major part of a baptist worship service uh so the sermon is going to be kind of the bulk of it and it could be up to an hour long even uh where the sermon is kind of like the main uh the main event there and um and then he again, he went on to talk about how testimonies are a common feature of baptist wars- uh, worship uh, the subject of testimonies depends on the person giving it and on the emphasis that the church is making at the time. So, um, uh, testimony time. People will stand up and they'll give their testimony about how they came to faith in Christ. And this uh, website also spoke about um, this uh, invitation or altar call that is often in Baptist churches. Uh, the website said, an appeal for decision is part of most Baptist worship services, such as for the lost to trust in in Jesus as personal Lord and Savior, for persons to become church members by letter or by statement, or for the backslidden to rededicate his or her life to Christ, and for persons to commit to full-time vocational service. Normally, people are encouraged to make their decisions public usually by coming forward and sharing the, the, the decision during the invitation hymn following the sermon. Um, uh, I can attest to to this. I wanted to, uh, early on in my Christian walk, in my early 20s, I was going to uh, join a, a Baptist church and um, went to the pastor, wanted to, to join the church, wanted to get baptized, and um, he said that I should have came down the aisle during the invitation hymn. So he bid me to come back the following week and walk down the aisle during the invitation hymn where we could actually do talk about these matters. And so it is interesting how it it can be a key central thing, walk the aisle during the during the altar call, during the invitation hymn, and usually the invitation hymn is more emotional, maybe even protracted, where they may maybe sing a few stanzas over and over again. And the pastor usually stands there kind of wooing the congregation to come to Christ. And uh, and then you you walk the aisle and get, and get saved or uh, pray a prayer or something like that. So um, th- those are kind of some big things in a Baptist worship service. It can, They can be very simple where you might have, um, you know, four or five hymns, a a um, sermon and then maybe the invitation hymn and then you're 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 done. So it could be very streamlined in in that way. Um, How might might our worship be different? Now if somebody's coming from that worship service, if someone's coming from you know we sing four or five hymns, there's a sermon, an invitation hymn, people walk the aisle perhaps, and then we leave, and then they come into a reform setting, they're going to experience something very very different.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of different Values that I think undergird uh, differences in values that uh, undergird our different approaches to worship. I think that our commitment, and we've talked about this in the past, to covenant really matters here. Um, Our view of the sacraments as God's work toward us really matters. Our connectional identity really matters as well. Because when we begin to then think about and conceive of worship, um, we're not thinking about it as our church autonomously isolated from other churches. We're realizing that in our worship service, we are standing upon the shoulders of those who came before us. We should be uh, looking like them to some degree. We're gonna be thinking about how we're in continuity uh, with them theologically, liturgically. We're not trying to reinvent things. Uh, We're thinking about the entire worship service as a ministry of the word. Rather than just the sermon itself, and so there's a lot of reading of scripture. There's various actions that take place that are, you know, a, a moments of scripture being preached and proclaimed. Um, so you end up seeing something that that Baptistic folks might think of as being more liturgical. That's a word that's oftentimes then used. But again, we're connecting ourselves with. Um, Israel of old because we're in continuity with them of the early church the medieval church that we, we recognize that there is a, a lineage that we're part of and so we're going to look older we're going to look more liturgical it's going to be more reverential oftentimes I, I think that you often see within a baptistic context the things are more spontaneous and more fun uh, we're, you know they're trying to create an emotional uh, uh, environment often Whereas we're more concerned with the objective realities of the word being read, the word being preached, that certain things that God has commanded us to do, that we're doing them faithfully and appropriately, uh, singing the Psalms, singing uh, various kinds of time-tested uh, hymns, uh, these things uh, come to bear. So I guess there's yeah a reverential aspect to it, a more historical aspect, a more liturgical and rhythmic aspect to it. Because we're not really as concerned with like the moment, the momentary um, encounter and experience, but we're more concerned with the long-term uh, maturity, the the rhythmic way of uh, forming uh, disciples over the course of time. Um, one thing that we bring to bear, I think, in our thinking about worship is something called the regulative principle of worship. If we might think back a little bit to uh, what we did um, a few, maybe a, about a month and a half ago, two months ago, we spoke about something called sola scriptura by scripture alone, and that scripture is that ultimate authority. And one of the things that when we think about scripture as being the ultimate authority is that scripture brings this authority to bear upon our lives, not only upon our individual lives, but upon our worship. And so therefore, we're governed not in just our individual lives by Scripture, but also in our worship by Scripture. And so Scripture tells us what's appropriate to worship. And what's appropriate in worship, we believe, is the word, the sacraments, and prayer. And prayer can be spoken or prayer can be sung. And so... These things tell us what's acceptable in worship to God because God doesn't allow just anything to be brought into his holy place, but rather only what God commands us to do is acceptable there. Now we might you know make some distinctions here of course, between the you know the the ceremony and then the how a ceremony is particularly conducted. yeah, fine that's a, a distinction called elements and circumstances, but the point being, that we're not free to just invent things and to try to just create an emotional response to things, but rather there's some things that God's Word teaches us to do and that we should do those things in worship and not be inventive or spontaneous. So, you know, we don't see things like altar calls, Within the biblical text we don 't see things like rededication moments and things like that,
1: or plays and ballets or, or play, yeah,
0: exactly. we can start going all the way down this <laughs> to yeah, I mean all sorts of performances I mean there's a church in our city who had a uh, somebody uh, tame a wild bronco supposedly at bull riding, you know horseback riding, things like that that that's completely not appropriate, um, the only time that bulls have been part of god's worship that's completely old covenant and we're not going there with offering up sacrifices because the great sacrifice has been offered but i guess just to to make this clear that um you know there's a rhyme and a reason for why we do what we do and it's, it's it's it relates to our overall vision and view of what god is doing vertically coming down to us within uh christian worship it's how god has commanded us to worship with the Holy Scripture. It's not because of some experience we're, we're seeking, but rather because we're trying to be faithful to the teaching of Holy Scripture. What are some of your thoughts here, Brandon, about uh, how some differences that might be seen in our worship?
1: Yeah, I mean even just from an experiential point of view, you know, I, I, I came out of a Baptistic kind of uh, a way, went to uh, Westside Reformed Church and, um, you know, left Westside Reformed Church and obviously the differences were were notable, but one thing I remember thinking is that was substantive. That was a lot of Scripture. That was Christ throughout the entire thing. I did notice that there was more congregational involvement where we're praying prayers together, we're singing together, we're reciting together. Um the the congregation is not like a passive audience watching some entertaining skit or or, or drama happening on stage, but the con- congregation is in a covenantal dialogue with God. God speaks from his word through his his office bearer, th- through the ministers of the word, speaks to the congregation, and the congregation responds. And God speaks, and the congregation responds. And in the worship was a covenantal conversation, dialogue, between God and his covenant people. And I think that was just really put on display the whole time. Um, also, reverence and awe. You know, the writer of Hebrews talks about worship, and it's a worship that's reverence and awe. And uh, some people really try to go in the opposite direction, uh, where almost reverence and awe is is something that should be avoided or something that, that seems dead or something but no reverence and all is commanded I mean it's the the, the, the writer of Hebrews is, is telling us how God wants to be worshiped with reverence and awe and biblically we do everything according to the Bible we, we start with a call to worship we end with a benediction we have a reading of the law we we say prayers together because of Acts chapter 2 where it says the early church came together and prayed the prayers the prayers the set prayers that they prayed every single Lord Day and so there are some t- prayers that are spontaneous and other prayers that are pre-written uh, because we see evidence of that in Scripture. Uh, but we, we every every element, we can point us to, to a text in Scripture and say we have we have uh, his, we have biblical warrant for doing all of these things, biblical command for doing these things, and our liturgy is 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 telling the story of the gospel. Um, we, we hear God summon us to worship and we eagerly are excited. We're expecting to meet with with God and in fact He does meet with us. We, we say that we, we call out for Him for help in the invocation. He greets us and meets us. We read the law of God and we're reminded of our sin. We go right into confession of faith or, or confession of sin rather and then after we confess sin we confess our faith in Christ we hear that we are pardoned and all of our sins are gone. We hear the reading of the word. We after the preaching of the word, we take the Lord's Supper. I mean there, there's there's a purpose and a narrative and a um a flow of the liturgy that is that we're walking through the gospel every single Lord's Day, and that is catechizing us. It's shaping us. You know, now, now because we've, we've been in a Reformed church now for, for a while, we, uh, like, like my children... They pray their prayers with us, they recite all the, the the readings with us they 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 know the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer just because they they're in church every single week and we recite those things every single week and it's shaping our piety and who we are and our faith and it's shaping us and that's important because the rule of faith and and the rule of worship are connected. The way that we worship impacts what we believe. And what we believe impacts how we worship. And there's this back and forth. So if you... If you are worshiping in a way that doesn't align to what you believe, you could actually start to believe false things. It could actually creep in to where you have a false theology that might not be confessed or spoken on the mouth, but something that will start to shape how we live and maybe deep down think about God or about ourselves. And we just need to make sure that our worship is biblical, our liturgy is from Scripture, that it is shaping a, a, a good piety and a good doctrine, a good theology, a good walk uh, in, uh, in, in us and our, in, in our children as well. Um, and so I think that those were a few things that stood out. And, and also to mention, we we sing a lot of psalms, and that was something that uh, in the Baptist church, we didn't do at all, uh, and so it's been refreshing. Now we're singing through the Psalter, and even in our daily devotions, as we're reading through psalms, we almost want to sing them because we, we know how to sing those, and so I'll be reading through the psalms, and then my children will spontaneously just break out in, in the song of that psalm because, you know, they, they they know how to sing it now, and so we're singing God's Word, we're hearing God's Word, we're speaking God's Word, praying God's Word, and it's just a different feeling from coming to be entertained versus coming to worship our covenant Lord in the way that he has commanded us to worship him. That's a couple stuff. Well, how about we uh, close by maybe talking about
0: a, a distinction that um, a Reformed theologian made a while back between the, 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 the uh, system of the anxious bench and the system of the uh, catechism. Because I think that might be a way mm-hmm. of helping us and our listeners to um, realize that we're talking about two very different approaches to worship that are operative here. And one of these is from um, a, uh, the, the second not-so-great awakening and uh, Charles Finney, as he began to introduce what were called then the new measures. This is a new way of worshiping. This was out of step with historic Christian worship. This was out of step with Jewish worship before that. And now I think many in our day don't even realize that the altar call and the anxious bench and the emotional music that manipulates you, this is a very novel thing that has happened not that long ago, less than 200 years ago. And they believe that that's how Christian worship has been over the centuries, Mm -hmm. when it positively has not been like that. And so I think that might be worth um, some discussion points here. Um, In terms of Charles Finney, I think it's worth noting that he was a man who was very innovative at his time. And he was innovative in some uh, church architecture ways I think I might have touched on a little bit in the past. But he was was a man that was trying to uh, perform. And what he was trying to do was to manipulate emotions because he believed that if you came and said a prayer, that because you did something, that you then were uh, twisting the arm of the Holy Spirit to then, to then create the new birth in your life. And so if, by, by use of different kinds of measures, he believed that like a factory line, like an assembly line, if you did the right things as a pastor, you could inevitably, scientifically, create conversion in your hearers. And so this manipulative approach to Christian worship then came in, whereby your you know your heartstrings would be pulled, uh, certain kinds of songs would be sung, and there'd be a certain order to it to make sure that you had this emotional experience. And then because of that, then the revival preacher could then create a response into his hearers that he was purposefully uh, manufacturing. It wasn't necessarily coming from a spiritual work of God. But this was a natural work of man that could then create a sort of a spiritual response,
1: and this is also different from the first great awakening. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Now, the first great awakening had its problems as well. Sure. So, the the first great awakening is typically spoken about as this spontaneous outpouring of the Holy Spirit, where you know preachers just through kind of word and sacrament, the the um, the the Spirit poured out, and, and there was mass conversions. Well, when you come to the second great awakening, Finney says no revival is not this spontaneous outworking of the Holy Spirit, it's scientific. Mm -hmm. If you do XYZ every time you'll have the same result. It's like doing it's like having a chemistry set and if you mix the right ingredients you have the same reaction every single time. And so it was a scientific approach to say, hey, if you just do X, Y, Z, then you'll just have conversions. If you have a, an altar call and you play emotionally manipulative music that makes people cry, you get people excited, you have an anxious bench, you do these new measures that he was writing about and proposing, then you'll have the result of mass conversion of people coming to your church and, and quote unquote getting saved. And, like you mentioned, almost mechanically, like, hey, read this pre-written prayer of salvation, the sinner's prayer, and at the end of it, you'll just be saved and you're good to go forever. You have your burn insurance, you are rapture ready, whatever it is, and um, it it became a very mechanical, say say these words and then you'll have this result every time. Roman Catholic in some ways, isn't it? Uh, mm-hmm.
0: By the working, it has worked.
1: Right, it is. <laughs> but you know,
0: as we think about that, then in this kind of emotionally manipulative environment of revivalism, and this um, this that approach, the the other way of thinking about worship that has been described as the catechetical approach. And when we begin to then think about that, we're thinking about um, a a rhythm of doing things that is not um, viewed as scientific or like a factory assembly line or something like that. But we're in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. We do what God commands us. We do this in a rhythmic way week after week. We commit ourselves to Christian basics, the catechetical approach of committing ourselves to the Lord's Prayer, to the Ten Commandments, to the two great commandments, to baptism in the Lord's Supper, to the Apostles' Creed, We commit ourselves to these historic Christian things and we trust that over the course of time, the Holy Spirit will do His work in our midst. And we trust that God is going to form us and shape us by this rhythmic way of doing things, not in a manipulative sense by any stretch, but in a theological sense of understanding God's pattern of guilt, grace, and gratitude, understanding that God meets us in these humble places not by manipulating our emotions. We don't confuse emotions with the Holy Spirit, but trusting that in simple places, in mundane contexts, that God comes down through holy and sacred rituals to meet with his people. And that is a place where we can hang our hat. Whether we're, having, we're experiencing a uh, joyful time in our Christian life, or maybe we're going through a dark spell, we know for sure that God meets with his people there. So what else would you say about the catechetical approach here brandon
1: yeah so it, it trusts on God's timing it's not mechanical it um you know d- doesn't say well, you know hey I prayed this and and now it's uh you know it it has to happen or something like that like it's it's trusting in God's timing as you as you um do do the the walk you know that uh, that he has that he has told us to to do. Um, trusting that he is going to work in and through us and, and in our children. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's a more, um, you're coming to church not uh, expecting some sort of mountaintop wild thing. You're coming to church as part, part of an ordinary rhythm uh, um, because that's how God works. And so that's a shift in, in piety and expectation that's it that that's a shift in uh, why we're even going to church am I going to church to experience a mountaintop experience where I'm gonna um, um, have a emotional experience that I'm gonna call the Holy Spirit and say well the spirit was there because I felt this certain emotion because I heard a certain song play that's that that elicited some sort of emotional response in me and then they call out the Holy Spirit and we're just not doing that in a more catechetical approach. In a catechetical approach, we know the Spirit's always there, whether I feel him or not. The Holy Spirit's always working on me um, as as I meet with with our Triune God through Word and Sacrament, Lord's day after Lord's day, in an ordinary rhythm, um, not a as um, as Michael Horton says, spiritual storm chasing, where I'm trying to find that tornado or that storm, and I'm trying to go to this like wild over the top experience. Because you, you, it, it's not healthy that that kind of that kind of high points, you know, m- massive roller coaster kind of kind of experiences is just not healthy in the Christian life. What's healthy in the Christian life is an ordinary rhythm that can, oftentimes, feel mundane. But it's an ordinary rhythm of word and sacrament, Lord's day after Lord's day after Lord's day, from cradle to grave. Uh, knowing that uh, that the Holy Spirit is working on you in very ordinary ways, the Word and Sacrament, and, and that shapes um, our motives and how we worship. And yeah, anything else? I don't think so. Thanks for joining us today at the Sensory uh, Reform Podcast.
0: We hope you check us out, org and check out our church as well. So until next time, thank you.